Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Holistic Healers podcast. My name is Morgan. For those who are new, welcome to the show. We talk about anything health and wellness related. And if you're a returner, as always, thank you so much for returning, uh, coming back, listening, providing recommendations of guests or topics you want to hear more, learn more about. I love getting those. And if you're listening or not sure how to do that, because maybe you have a great idea in mind, feel free to message me. You can comment at the end of this episode. You can ask a question or write your comments to me. You can DM me on Instagram. My handle is at holistic underscore healing LC, or you can email me at my Gmail. And that is altogether holistic healing LC at gmail.com. All right, let's get in today's November episode. I am still on the search for upcoming 2024 guests. We have a few lined up already, but if you are someone who is interested in being on, I'd love to have you. I'd love to talk to you before and just get to know you a little better, and hopefully we can have a good episode together. Okay, so for our guest today, I'm so excited, wonderful person, have learned so much already from her. She is a Jewish board-certified clinical trauma chaplain. Uh, she received her Master's of Divinity from Boston University's School of Theology. She completed her clinical residency at the Seattle VA Hospital and worked as a staff chaplain for many years at the Seattle Children's Hospital on their cancer care unit, their pediatric intensive care unit, and their inpatient psychiatric unit. So she's done a lot. Uh, she's helped so many people already. And she specializes in trauma, grief and loss, and end-of-life work. And she's recently started her own private practice to provide spiritual care. And her work is deeply informed by an anti-oppression ethic. She's passionate about advocating for a systemic lens and power analysis in all conversations about mental health and wellness, maybe in general. And she believes that there is a gateway to holiness everywhere that we can look. So without further ado, I don't want to take more from her. Um, I would love to welcome Abby Brockman to the Holistic Healers podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here, Morgan. Of course. Thank you for being on. Why don't you start off just sharing a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. Well, first off, Morgan, I'm really excited to be here. I haven't done a lot of podcasts, but I really believe that having conversations is really how we most often make change. Um, as we know, in the therapeutic room, it's really relationship based. So this is really special for me. So first off, thank you for having me. Um, in terms of about myself, I'm a trauma chaplain. Um, I've worked at a few different hospitals. I worked in Boston. I've worked here in Seattle. And I recently left institutions. And I'm now starting a private practice where I provide a lot of end-of-life care and grief counseling from a spiritual care perspective. I already have so many questions for you. <laughs> um, I guess, tell me a little about what a trauma chaplain does. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that sounds like a simple, easy question, <laughs> but especially as a Jewish trauma chaplain, um, 
there's there's layers to, to what that does, especially because the whole concept of what a chaplain is is really misunderstood and not often talked about. So in terms of the trauma part of being a trauma chaplain, it's been really important to me to become trauma informed in my clinical work. And I can actually tell you a story of the moment that that concretized for me. Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, so I was doing my clinical residency at the VA hospital here in Seattle, and I'd always taken an interest in trauma, and I'd done a lot of training on the side, read books about it, and really tried to integrate it into my care. But I was sitting one day with my chaplain residents, the other chaplain residents in my group, and we were presenting case studies. So this was about three quarters of the way through our residency, and one of my colleagues presented the case of a patient he had worked with. And he starts describing this patient and he describes this patient as lying, manipulative, not trustworthy, crazy. And so I start listening really closely to the rest of the story. And it really became clear to me based on the context that I felt that a more accurate description of what was going on with this patient was trauma. And he was presenting in pretty classical, typical trauma response ways. So I raised my hand and I asked my colleague um, for more information about why his assessment was so negative. And I said, have you considered that this is just a trauma response? And he looked at me and he said, what are trauma responses? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's the feeling I had. I said, wait a minute. How could we both have gone through three years of graduate training, so much clinical training, hundreds of patients seen? And still not recognize really typical trauma responses. And so that in that moment, I realized, wow, not only how important it is to understand how trauma manifests, because if not, we have this totally different narrative of why, of who people are and what they're doing and why, but how rare it is to actually deeply understand trauma and have it integrated into your clinical lens and your practice. So in terms of being a trauma chaplain, the trauma peace feels really important to me because of the impact, whether or not we understand trauma and how that plays into our care. So that's the trauma piece of what a chaplain oh. chaplain is. What is a chaplain? Um, this is actually a really hard question to answer because the field is really changing and evolving. It started in the military, actually, and a lot of people think chaplains are religious figures. So the first thing I used to have to do when going into a room is assure people that they didn't need to be religious. They definitely didn't need to be Christian because the term itself has Christian undertones to it. And that what a chaplain really does is it accompanies people often through threshold moments. So if you think about birth, death, marriage, coming of age, changes, moments of discernment, Chaplains are really figures who help people and accompany people through some of life's toughest moments. So it's a bit of theology. It's a bit of pastoral care. It's a lot of psychology all mixed together. I love that. That is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> I, when I've heard of just people that I know who have been chaplains or currently are, I have heard of like the Christian kind of normal chaplain. So I was curious how you know, that worked with you, but that's really cool that you have this more flexible style and can really work with a bunch of different populations of people. Totally. You know, and I'm really progressive in a lot of things, especially in spiritual care. I'm really interested in visionary spiritual care. And yet I am one of the few chaplains who for myself really hangs on to the word chaplain. 
there's a lot of dialogue in our field as to whether or not we should even keep that term, if we should throw it away, if we should call ourselves spiritual care practitioners, spiritual care clinicians. And even though it has Christian undertones and I'm a Jewish chaplain, there's just something about that word that resonates so deeply for me in terms of what I do. And the word itself comes from a word that means cape and a cape that was given in an ancient story to someone who was grieving and a cape was put on them to kind of like hold them and comfort them. So I I understand that a lot of people have complications with the word chaplain, but for me, it still feels like the only term that deeply gets at what I do. I like the historical kind of background to it too. I think that I feel like it almost solidifies what you do. Like it gives you some credibility almost. I like that. (laughs) Yeah, I should look up the story so I can like say the word in Latin and tell the story, but that's kind of the gist of it. And to me, that just like really names what I do. And so spiritual care provider, it just feels too amorphous, too nebulous for me. Whereas chaplain, I just really identify through and through as a chaplain. Yeah. And it's like situations that aren't just bad ones. Like marriage is just a huge change. And I've talked about that in like grief, just topics in general, like grief isn't just about death. It's about major changes in our life and how even those, although they're happy, can be still big stressors in our life, like new identities, loss of identities. Um, So that's really cool that you bring that up. It's not just death and end of life care. That's really cool. Totally. In fact, I've officiated numerous weddings, almost 10 at this point. Um, (laughs) So I love doing, I love doing life cycle events. I've of course officiated memorials and funerals um, and things like that, but also very much weddings. Okay. So what was it like being a chaplain at, you said you were in the VA hospital, right? In Seattle. Um, And then I think also children's hospital. Um, Yeah. Seattle children's. Yeah. How was your experience in either one of those or both? I love that question. I've never really thought about them side by side. I've thought about what it was like at the VA and what it was like at Children's. You know, there's such different demographics. At the VA, I worked mostly with older veterans. At Seattle Children's, I obviously worked a lot with kids, pediatrics, um, and families. Um, I think there are some similarities, and I think there are some differences. Um, One of the biggest differences I've never said this out loud, I don't think, and definitely not publicly. (laughs) Well, here we go. (laughs) Um, I think one of the things that it's really important for clinical workers to really figure out is what demographics they like working best with. Um, So even as a chaplain, I actually really have found that I love working with older people, helping them do discernment and processing and healing work. One of the things I realized when working at Seattle Children's is there's a different dynamic than at the VA. At the VA, a lot of my patients were older, they were adults, and they were in bed. So I went in and I would talk to them as patients. Seems simple and straightforward. At Seattle Children's, the dynamic, if you think about it, God forbid a child gets sick. And so a parent is in the hospital with their sick child. So depending on the age of the child, sometimes you can't talk to the child. Um, Sometimes you can interact with them through play and other forms of connection, which are really important, but sometimes you can't even do that. 
But the role of the parents, a lot of people think, oh, so you support the parents. But a parent, when their child is sick, is so focused on their child. They're so focused on just survival and getting their child through this difficult thing that sometimes they're not even ready, willing, or able to process in the moment. And so that was just like a really core difference in terms of the dynamic at Seattle Children's versus the VA is it children's, you often were there for when they were ready, for when they would break, for when there was an escalation, for when there was overwhelmed. Um, but in the day-to-day, -day, the dynamic of a parent taking care of a sick child really meant that they weren't thinking about themselves fundamentally um, until something spilled over and they really had to. So that is like kind of one difference that to me is fascinating because it really helped me understand how much I love working with um, teenagers and above. And the different dynamics that come into play when you think about family dynamics, a child being sick. Yeah, I that's really I've never worked with kids before, but I think that's a great point that you you're working kind of with their community too, like their parents, like maybe even teachers. I don't know if you would do that, but just like, you know, their immediate family, I think is super important, but a different dynamic that you wouldn't necessarily like do with adults. <laughs> Totally. At the VA, often, you know, families were involved, families would be around, especially in end of life. And there's a lot of dynamics that can go on there. But even the most typical case at children's automatically involved a family system, mm -hmm. group dynamics, um, and having to navigate that and support everyone in that dynamic and system. Yeah, that actually, I know we talked about this um, before we started recording, but this kind of reminds me of the post that you had on LinkedIn. And I don't think I even shared this in um, the introduction about yourself, but we met, uh, for the people listening, we met on LinkedIn and we were talking about a previous episode. Well, I think we connected before that, but we were talking <laughs> about another episode that I had done about burnout. Um, but then I've just been a big fan of you on LinkedIn. I always <laughs> like looking at your post. Um, but you posted one about being a hospital, excuse me a hospital trauma chaplain, um, and then just kind of some things to consider. And I was wondering if you could explain that to people, because I think it was everyone should listen to this. Yeah, I would love to. Thank you so much for bringing this up. The post that you're referring to is a post that I wrote where I basically explained that I visited with over a thousand patients in my career as a hospital trauma chaplain, and that there are a few things that all of us can do, anyone who works in a hospital or who visits a hospital can do to make the visit more deeply compassionate and dignity-based. I think dignity and compassion are these ideas that we throw around a lot, but we don't necessarily talk about how specifically and tangibly to do them. So I wrote a post with a few ideas and some of the ones that I listed, um, the first one I think I said was to introduce and or acknowledge the patient first. Mm -hmm. Um, I said, even if they're a child, even if they're sedated, and I can't tell you how transformative something that sounds so simple like this has been in my practice. When you go into a hospital room, especially when you're a patient, there are all sorts of levels of marginalization that you experience as a patient. You would think, oh, I'm the patient. I get the most attention. You get a certain kind of attention, but you often also lose your voice, especially if you have family members around. And so I can't tell you how many times I've seen clinicians and multidisciplinary support staff walk into a room completely ignore the patient and just start talking to the family member, to the parent, to the sibling, to anybody but the patient. 
So even if anyone who walks into a room, even if you can just acknowledge the patient. Now, what if the patient's a child? What if the patient's a baby? What if the patient is sedated? Well, let me tell you, when I go into a room and it's a baby, a child, or a patient who's sedated, and I acknowledge them in some way, if they're sedated, I've sometimes, you know, introduced myself quietly to them. Um, if it's a baby or a child, you know, I've sometimes played with them or looked at them just even for a split second. And sometimes I'll tell the family, hey, do you mind if I just introduce myself, you know, to the patient whisper in their ear so that they know who's talking in their room. And the look of relief, gratitude on the family faces to have their loved one acknowledged and centered. It does something for them. So I think all around, no matter who the patient is, it makes such a difference for you to acknowledge, interact, or introduce yourself in whatever way that's feasible or possible in the context of that visit to focus first on the patient. It's important for the patient. It also really makes the family feel like their loved one is getting the best care and being the most seen. So that was one example. Another example that I gave is to sit down. I feel like, Morgan, if I could shout something from a mountaintop, <laughs> it would be to sit down when visiting with patients. In fact, when I worked at the VA, I was on the palliative care service for a while. And all of the palliative care doctors carried around this little stool chair. It's really hard to describe. It weighs about a pound and a half, I would say. It's a stool and it has a handle on it and it's collapsible. So it's small enough and it's light enough that they would just carry the stool around with them throughout the whole hospital. And every time we went in to do a visit with a palliative care patient, they would open up the stool and sit down on it. So when I got to Seattle Children's, I immediately noticed two things. No one is walking around with a collapsible foldable chair stool. <laughs> and two, so many clinicians are standing up in patient rooms even to give really important information and have really deep and difficult conversations. So I asked my manager if the department would buy me their $30 on Amazon, a collapsible folding stool. She said yes. And I started walking around. I was never without a collapsible folding stool. And it was helpful in rooms because sometimes rooms have chairs. Mm. But the chairs at Seattle Children's were wooden and sort of heavy. So it was kind of a big deal to lug them out. You had to find them. Sometimes they were in the closet. So sometimes it just felt so dramatic and such a big deal to just bring a chair to bedside. Yeah. I didn't have to do any of that rigmarole. Mm -hmm. I just had my collapsible folding stool and I could sit with a patient and talk. I would find people in hallways who were crying. I could immediately just sit oh. down with them. It just made it really accessible. And studies show that if you sit with someone... You register to the patient that your visit is twice as long. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And so it really communicates patience. I'm not in a rush. I have all the time in the world for you. And I really want to be here for you. Um, so those are two of like the ones that I was most excited about. How did those land to you? I love that you brought this up because to me, it's like, you know, in any, well, first of all, in any clinical setting, well, I shouldn't say any. I should say in a therapeutic room, usually, if not always, you're sitting across from the client. Sometimes, you know, with COVID, there was the telehealth. But like when you're talking about sitting and like really resonating with their 
like basic level needs of feeling heard, feeling seen, feeling understood. Like you're sitting down, your body language is towards them. You're not standing up where there's like this power dynamic. Like I, I'm just trying to think of like clinical practice and like how important it is to do that and why we wouldn't do it in any other setting, like outpatient, inpatient, you know, hospital. I, I like the correctional setting. Like I, I just, I'm like, how can we not do this? How can we not make people feel heard and seen? It's just, it's kind of mind blowing. Totally. And I think one of the reasons why I love talking about, and I encourage anyone who's listening to this podcast, um, you can go check out the post on my, my LinkedIn page. But one of the reasons why I think it's so important is one of the things we share, Morgan, is we really care about systemic issues and systemic burdens. And I think it's really easy to get overwhelmed by the brokenness of our systems, especially by the brokenness of our healthcare systems in the context we're talking about. But when you think about the list that that I suggested to people, I listed seven things people can do tangibly practical that, of course, don't cost any money. Um, It kind of reminds me that we're not even doing the low hanging fruit, Mm. which is at once a criticism, but it's also hopeful, right? Because it would be one thing if we were doing everything we possibly could and it's still as bad as it is, Mm -hmm. right? But that's not the case. It's like we're missing this low-hanging fruit that doesn't cost us anything. And some parts don't even take more time. Some of them do definitely take more time to sit down and talk with someone. So it also gives me hope in conversations about systemic issues and brokenness and suffering and trauma to realize, hey, wait a minute, there are really big, deep structural changes we need to make. And because it's both and and there are things that we're missing that we can do even right now that can make a tangible meaningful and profound difference in the care we provide yeah and the fact that you know there's a lot of clinicians on here that usually listen to this uh podcast but it's like these are the little things like if you want to make systemic differences these are things that you can do whether or not, honestly, you're in a hospital setting or not. And like you said, there's seven, I'm looking at them right now. There's seven different- I wanted lines. to go look. I just opened, I was like, wait, I want to okay. go see. Um, I won't steal your spotlight and read them all. But I even just the two that you mentioned, you know, just acknowledging the client first, because I think you're right. Like, it, I think it brings a sort of like ableist to the conversation, like who's able to- be a part of the conversation. Is it the person that has to have care right now? No, like we aren't prioritizing this person, which we definitely need to. But when we talk to like their family or like their community, that's there to support them. You know, I'm glad that they're there for them. It's also like, well, they're all able. There are all these people that can have the conversation right now, even if it's kids. Like if we're not acknowledging them, are we saying that kids aren't important and can't have a say in their health and wellness? I don't know. There's just so many different things, like you said, that come up with this marginalization of groups that maybe we're not even conscious of. There's, there's I, I love I love that you say that. And I want to make even a specific plug yeah. to follow up on what you're saying when it comes to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. So I've been in the muscular dystrophy community since I was 16 years old. And so really um, integrated and have worked and have friends and relationships um, in the rare disease community. And one of the things I hear all the time from parents is that they will take their child who could be 14 years old, could be 25 years old, could be 32 years old and is in a wheelchair and they'll go to an appointment and the physician, the doctor, the nurses will just address the parent. 
it's almost, I mean, it's not almost as if it is that when someone is in a wheelchair, we disregard them and don't see them. So the same thing when someone's in a hospital bed, we have that same impulse to disregard, invalidate, ignore, even sort of silence when really like these are the patients, like look at someone, talk to them, slow down, do what you have to do to meet them where they're at so that they're the center of the conversation. Yeah, that's such a great point too. And Maybe to play devil's advocate here, because I've heard this kind of come up, especially when we were talking about, you know, viewing people with uh, disabilities. I've heard there's like a nervousness around these people. You know, we don't want to offend, which, you know, to some extent, I'm like, I get it. Like that, that is valid to a certain extent, but it's also like that physical like boundary of not wanting to communicate already marginalizes them even further you're not bringing them to the table for the conversation. You're too scared, which again, it's like, that's a very individualistic kind of point of view. I don't know, but I'm also thoughts. Also, yeah, I love that. Also, as adults, we're uncomfortable all the time. So if I go into a networking event, I'm uncomfortable, but I know that I have to deal with it. I don't stay in my apartment because, right? Like you learn mm-hmm. and you we learn how to do that. So- someone making you uncomfortable, or I should rephrase that, not someone making you, you being uncomfortable around someone. um, I think that's a really important differentiation. You feeling uncomfortable around someone is not a license to treat them differently, right? Like reflect (laughs) and figure that out. We're uncomfortable all the time and we learn what to do. And it's on us to interrogate Mm -hmm. our discomfort and not just bypass it by going to the easy way of, okay, I'll just talk to the parent. Like, well, why does someone in a wheelchair make you Mm -hmm. uncomfortable? Why does that, why do you see them as different? Like literally what about that so immediately makes Mm -hmm. you uncomfortable? And if that's the case, like there's a lot to plumb there for yourself. And that's honestly the hardest work when it comes to, I don't even want to say hard. It's just like, like we have to do it first of all, but I think that discomfort is, I don't even know the words for it. I'm just like, do you want to be self-aware? Like, and especially if you're a clinician, like, do you want to show up as your best self to help treat these patients or clients? And I think it comes with, hey, what are my pitfalls? What are my triggers? What are the things I'm going to bring into this room so I'm not biased or I'm not going to like unintentionally harm a client for whatever reason? Like, I think those are things, especially as clinicians, we have to be mindful of. And if we're not, are we the best clinicians we can be? Probably not. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I think in, in our fields of mental health and spiritual care, I think there's a really big focus on what we call continuing education. Yes. Um, Which is great, right? Like we should be learning. And I think there also has to be just as a focus on, I don't know what you would call it, but like continuing inner work development growth, right? Like, yes, we need to learn more content, get better at ideas. We need to do Mm -hmm. like kind of more classic continuing education so that we're always learning. Yeah. And we can't bifurcate or dissociate what's going on inside of us and who we are as people. We have to make mm-hmm. sure that we're also growing um, as we go through life so that when we go into rooms, we know what we're bringing into them. Yeah. We know what can get triggered. We know what is coming up for us. And we know how what we've gone through might interact or affect 
how we show up with a patient. No, absolutely. I totally agree with that. Maybe like my school makes a requirement of every student, I think master's and doctoral students that you have to have therapy hours. Like you personally have to be in counseling throughout this program. And I'm just like, shouldn't this just already be happening? Like, shouldn't you already have like this third party perspective that's like, hey, you're doing this, like kind of calling you out. And that's kind of my like I'm not a counselor right now but like that's when I was I was like that's kind of my approach like I'm very direct and like I will call something out if I see it because I'm like that's kind of my job like I'm not gonna side with you on everything like I have to be impartial totally and name what you see and and bring it out and invite people to consider it I think one of the things that there's a lot of things about spiritual care training that are really hard and intense Um, but one of them is that almost like the first half a year, I mean, really the whole thing, um, the whole first unit of a clinical residency is really focused on you and your darkness and where you come from and what's going on for you in the room and what's being brought up and why you reacted that way. And so there's a real, real focus on learning who you are and owning and being accountable and growing that I definitely appreciate more and more as time goes on, that that was like so kind of drilled into me to be aware of that from jump. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, it definitely sounds like this is your path. <laughs> it definitely sounds like this is your calling. <laughs> Well, I just wrote a post today on um, the moment when I realized that this was my calling because Morgan, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I actually, there was a lot that went into that, a lot of discernment. And I ended up moving from Seattle to Boston and I enrolled in post-baccalaureate pre-med science classes. And I was going to apply to be a doctor. And about a year into the program, I did more reflection and more talking to doctors. And I realized that I wasn't interested in being a doctor. The way I described it at the time was I had no interest in getting to point of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. I think I made up that term, but it's what it's in my mind. I, the puzzle, the figuring, the science that so many doctors and medical students talk about what brings them to medicine. I realized I had zero interest in that. Instead, once there was a diagnosis, Mm -hmm figuring out what that diagnosis means in someone's life on many layers from spiritual, emotional, mental, and more. That was what I was interested in. At the time, I didn't know what that meant. So I literally just became an admin assistant for five years. Mm -hmm. I ended up coming across chaplaincy, getting into chaplaincy, finding that it was perfect. But in my first week of clinicals at Brigham and Women's Hospital, I was the chaplain on the trauma burn ICU. I was sitting with an elderly woman who didn't have any family and she was dying and I was with her for a long time, hours. But at this point, it was probably an hour into my visit and the door to her hospital room was cracked open. And so when rounds happened that morning, I heard all of the doctors and nurses and other staff come by the room and I could hear a little bit their conversation outside the door. Mm -hmm. And I heard them talking about vitals and diagnostics and medication and changes to make. But it was this incredibly clarifying moment where I saw both paths Mm -hmm. in front of me at the same time. And I realized, oh my gosh, if I'd become a doctor, I would have been outside the room talking about the patient. But because I'm a chaplain, I get to be inside the room with the patient. Yeah, that's really cool. (laughs) 
So I'm also glad I became a chaplain. It feels like the path and calling for me, but I was like on a totally different road before I found my way here. Yeah. And that's, I'm so glad that you had that experience too, because I think, you know, just in maybe in the United States, I don't know about other countries, but like, I mean, maybe I'm a hypocrite for saying this because I'm getting my doctorate, but it's like, people want to see the DR at the front of your name. And it's like a lot of us um, are just focused on that and not the purpose and the why that they're in the field. Like they're doing it for the clout. They're doing it for whatever reason. Um, You know, maybe it's fulfilling to a certain extent. Like I think you could have done well in that role. But again, it's like you found this route that was more fulfilling and it you don't need a doctorate for it, I think. And that's kind of the purpose, again, of this podcast I've said before is like you like I have experts on who are you know maybe like yourself who are working with clients and patients but then there's even people who are just going through the healing journey themselves who can also help clients so a lot of people get stuck in needing to go far in college and grad school and other people you know are just content like they just like helping people or like what they're doing or don't need as much schooling like I think you have a master's like that's amazing and people just don't I don't know people need to acknowledge that more totally I totally agree I think it's I think even getting into systems right Mm -hmm. like I think a lot of people feel pressure a lot of shoulding I Mm -hmm. should do this, right? Like someone told them they should be this or should do this or should follow this path. And so I think it takes a lot to really kind of go into yourself and figure out um, why am I doing this? Mm -hmm. If there's a good why, it's amazing to get a doctorate. It's incredible to go that deep and become an expert in in a subject. And it's not the right path for everyone. And so I think it's really about like being attuned and connected and introspective and intentional about the why. someone might be doing something. And I think a lot of times, like we're disconnected from ourselves. We're disconnected from why we're doing what we're doing. We're just kind of like following what we've been told to do, or we don't know what else to do. So we're going to do this and that will push off having to make other decisions. So I think it's just really, really important as much as possible for people to get to interrogate. Why am I doing this? Who am I? Is this really the path? And for me, it meant turning away from becoming a doctor And being an admin assistant, I mean, I ordered catering, I kept calendars, I cleaned up conference rooms, I scheduled meetings for people for five years, but like that was my path to chaplaincy. I didn't just want to go become a doctor to become a doctor. Yeah, no, that's, again, that's such a great point too. And I don't know, I... I've always battled with that too. And like, even some of the people that I know, I'm like, are you truly into this or are you there for the money? Like, what are you doing? And again, it's like, I don't even have all the answers for my own life, but I'm glad you just brought that up. (laughs) Yeah. And I will also say grace, right? Like, it's really easy for me to say, oh, we should be intentional. There's a lot of things that prevent people from doing that. And also I think, again, even looking at my incredibly nonlinear journey, um, And if someone does something and then it turns out, oh, I didn't really want to do that, like, that's also okay. You know, like, even if someone is getting a doctorate or is pursuing something and they're disconnected from their feelings or why they're doing it, maybe they'll get there later. And I I don't think even that is a reason for shame or self-judgment. We all have journeys and we all end up doing things. 
that we might look back on differently. And so if pursuing a certain degree ends up being part of your journey and then you end up going in another direction, that doesn't even necessarily mean you made a mistake. It means like grace for the journey wherever we go and however we get there. Yep. And like you said, if you're attuned to your needs and your purpose and your why, like your interests are going to change over time. So you never know where you're going to end up. And that's totally okay. Totally. And I think that one of the baseline assumptions that we work from that I always like to call out is I think there is this subconscious, but very powerful assumption that a lot of people make on a deep level, which is if I heal enough, if I introspect enough, if I do enough research, then I can make the right choice every step of the way and have a linear path. And so there's, right, there's like a lot of pressure to do. And what I always want to say to people, it doesn't matter how much you do. It's not about getting it right every step Mm -hmm. of the way and putting that pressure on yourself to do it, thinking that there's an amount of research, introspection, thoughtfulness, intentionality that you can bring such that you will make the quote unquote right step of the way. That's just not life. And so kind of taking that pressure off saying, let's be intentional, let's be reflective, let's do our due diligence. And this is just going to be a wild ride. Yeah. And also, I think this is where you had a wonderful comment on like my previous episode about burnout. Like we can put so much pressure on ourselves to make sure we have life right, you know, to not burn out and, you know, not be doing everything, but also doing everything. And like, you know, just doing all the things that this society is expecting of us. A lot of women too are expecting of women to do. Um, But there's also systemic issues at play that can, that if we don't acknowledge that, then we just feel this extra burden on ourselves. And whether that's choosing a career or, you know, like being in the career and wondering why you still feel dysregulated and like not attuned to the client's needs. Like there's going to be so many different reasons why those happen, but there's a huge systemic issues that are at play that, you know, one, sometimes we can't change, but two, we just have to be mindful of. Totally. And I think that is something really important because the term that I often like to use is internalized systemic violence. Mm. And will you explain that to the audience? Yeah. So internalized systemic violence means when systems, and we can, we can break this down when systems perpetuate violence and oppression, but instead of us recognizing, Oh, this is happening because of the system Instead of that happening, the systems get to remain invisible and therefore unaccountable. And then we blame ourselves for the struggles that we're going through as if it's just a matter of not having enough resilience, not having the right attitude, not having the right mindset. Dr. Jade Singleton, I encourage everyone to find her work, especially on LinkedIn and follow her. She calls this the grit grift. Oh, I've never heard about that. Right. So a grift is a scam and this is the grit grift. And she talks a lot about this of, we think that everything is the result of just our own grit. We Mm. just need to be resilient. We just need to find grit. We just need to work hard again, have the right mindset. And if we do that, that that is the answer to getting the life we want, becoming who we want to be. But that very individualistic lens completely ignores 
the role of systems on our wellness, the role of systems on our outcomes, the role of systems on our accomplishments and successes and possibility. And so when we only have this lens that puts everything on us, we end up with a self-help movement and self-empowerment content that completely puts everything on the shoulders of individuals. And then when individuals who really are impacted by systems in really profound and fundamental ways, but they're not named, they then take on shame, Mm -hmm. feelings of inadequacy, brokenness. Why can't I be successful? I should be able to mindset my way through this. I should be able to hard work my way through this. And then that adds to the burden because they're internalizing the violence perpetuated by the system, which only adds to their burden. Does that make sense? Yeah, go off. (laughs) I mean, if you follow me on LinkedIn, pretty much 90% of my comments are on self-help, self-empowerment posts, um, and solopreneurship content that really just applies this incredibly individualistic lens um, and gives solutions and approaches that don't at all take into account systems and the collective. And so about 90% of my comments are just trying to bring a systemic lens to this sort of content. It just feels really important. And I'm passionate about it. Not because I'm Jewish and like to push back, although I am Jewish (laughs) and like to push back, but because really in all seriousness, in my work, I feel like I deal with Mm -hmm. the impact of these narratives that are hyper-individualistic, right? I meet with clients that say they're inadequate that feel ashamed that their motivation hasn't Mm -hmm. been enough, that their hard work hasn't been enough. They're getting these messages that that's all it takes. And then I'm seeing the impact on them and I'm having to work with them on forming different narratives and unlearn some of that. So when I then see that content, I'm so aware of the very real impact it has on really creating these toxic expectations for success. And so I think that's, again, something else we share that we both really care about that. Yeah. And it, a lot just like brought up, brought up so much for me because I like one, I think about just CBT. Have you heard of CBT before? Oh, cognitive okay, behavioral yeah. therapy. Totally. Yeah. Um, I like it to a certain extent where there's like defense mechanisms and stuff. However, it's like, you can't see it or like people listening can't see it, but it's like very minimal because a lot of the times people will say, oh, CBT can be really good for trauma or like can be really good for changing mindset and quotes mindset because we've talked about this before the podcast. (laughs) Um, But I'm like, this puts the onus on this like habitual core belief that they have to now change it. And it's up to them. And if they don't, then these feelings that they're experiencing, it's all because of them. And if you don't change it, then it's up to you. And if you don't, then you're just going to be stuck with this and you're going to be stuck forever. And I just think it's very individualistic, like you were talking about, to expect someone to be like, you know, this maybe decades and decades worth of this core belief of I'm not doing enough. My health is now like going out the window. I think I'm doing enough. I think I'm eating right. I think I'm, you know, doing this, this and this. And to feel like you're not enough and then to have someone walk into the room and be like, let's do a worksheet and how to change your belief. I'm like, oh my gosh, what are you doing to these poor people? I don't know. Totally. I'm so glad you brought that up. I will say, and I'm curious if you have seen the same thing. I would say really in the last year, 
so recent. I am now starting to see a shift, not away from CBT, but a shift towards kind of recognizing it's a tool. Mm -hmm. It should be one of many for listeners who don't know cognitive behavioral therapy. And again, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not the best voice to explain this, but in my understanding and from what I've seen, cognitive behavioral therapy has been sort of the gold standard and go-to like across the board, no matter what issue or what kind of diagnosis or what you're going through, CBT is often like the first solution that everyone tries to throw at it. And so only in the last year am I seeing people say, well, wait a minute, like CBT, it can be useful in XYZ, but actually in ABC, it's not good when mm-hmm. it comes to certain trauma, when it comes to this, when it comes, like we're, we're, we're starting to see CBT not as the golden, you know, end all be all of therapy yeah. and really getting more nuanced about when and why and how it's applied. Yeah, Have you no, seen that? Yes, absolutely. Well, and I also think it depends on the system you're working with. So I think if you are dealing with clients who have a lot of trauma, I have definitely seen that shift in not needing to resort on CBT. And it is like, I'm not even going to like lie. It is an evidence-based treatment. Like you're saying, like it has been used. It helps a lot of people. And I'm not saying you should never. Yeah. It's a tool. Like you said, it's one tool. Um, But for me, like when I was working with clients who were on probation or parole and dealing with the criminal justice system, telling them that they are bad people, which again, it's like, I'm not even going to validate the fact that, you know, they, they did harm to people. Like we're not discounting that. And there has to be some sort of self-accountability. But when I'm in a, when I'm in a session with some of these people and I'm telling them just to change how they think about the world when they have dealt with years and decades maybe of trauma and abuse and substance use potentially like that approach doesn't work so I think it just depends on the system that you're working with the diagnosis or like whatever mental health thing that they were dealing with or are dealing with but it's just it's just wild to me to think about how some of these like tools are very individualistic and like not focus on the collective or like how the criminal justice system specifically like creates just like there's classism in it there's financial burdens in it and to feel like racism race yes please yes (laughs) racism all these other things that are like oh just ignore that just find your way to make money or believe in yourself and pull yourself up by your bootstraps meritocracy like find that grit like what are you telling these people? Totally. And that's what it does, right? Is like mm-hmm. the system is designed yeah. to keep itself invisible. It doesn't want to be named because mm-hmm. it doesn't want to be changed because it serves people in power. And the profit and motive money. is tied up with that. What? I said makes money, but you said it. Yep. Profit. Or yeah, totally. And so what we have to do is we have to call it out. And to mm-hmm. me, that's often what I call as a chaplain, the prophetic voice. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to have this prophetic voice and it's not being negative. It's not being stubborn. It's not being a naysayer. It's saying like, listen, these systems really oppress people and marginalize people. And they bring a lot of control and and damage and oppression to people. We need to call them out. We need to name them. We need to bring them into the room. We need to acknowledge them. And then we need to work on pushing back against them and building other ways. But as long as we allow them to stay invisible, silent, and unaccountable, 
we're going to take the entire burden onto ourselves and think that somehow as individuals, we're supposed to solve, this is again, language from Dr. Jade Singleton. She says, why do she says something like, this is not an exact quote. Why do we think individual solutions can solve collective trauma? Yep. (laughs) Why do we think individual solutions can solve collective trauma? They can't. Yeah. Surprise. <laughs> yeah. Surprise. Well, I'm... what got you interested in systems? And and you told me kind of off the pod that your school is really um focused on that. I would love to hear like what how did you get this systemic view and lens, which as we've been talking about, is not the default or the norm? Yeah, no, so um yes, my school is one of the only grad schools. Uh, doctoral grad schools that focuses on social justice topics so there was this there is this huge emphasis from my school to have this lens on and continue to have it on for the rest of our lives Um, for me too like growing up I didn't have it and so coming into this program I even have told a bunch of my classmates and professors this I'm like this is new stuff to me but it doesn't mean I shouldn't be learning of learning about it or you know paving this path so I don't have you know people who are marginalized needing to have this burden so there's always been and there's also like this interest there's always been this interest in politics and systems and court systems and stuff that I've liked since I was like in middle school I used to want to be a lawyer and I was just like I want to work in the court systems and I still do but I just really found just the how people work together and all that stuff really just interesting but you know the more that I've seen this integration of like mental health and physical health and culture and trauma like all these different things and how they are so closely interconnected this happens not just on an individual level and so the more I saw this interconnection of all these things in clients just on their own the more I was just like this isn't just happening in this person this client's life this client's life this client's life like bigger mental health policy like bigger physical health medical policy pharmaceuticals like the laws environment like all even like toxins and stuff and like how inflammation can come up for multiple different reasons like all that kinds of stuff I was like it has to be just bigger than an individual and I don't know I think at the end of the day I was just like I've always liked policy as well so the fact that if I understand the bigger like overarching theme of holistics and how it's really trickling down and making people feel shameful about themselves has really just like grind my gears <laughs> It's always made me want to just continue on. I love that. And I want to affirm that and support that in you. And it really reminds <laughs> me of a quote from Desmond Tutu. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with any of his work, but oh. he has a really famous quote. And I want to read it to you because oh. you don't ad lib Desmond Tutu. Um, <laughs> I've never um, heard of this. Let me see. Do you What's know who this? Desmond Tutu is? No. Okay. Um, I'm looking him up. River Desmond Tutu. Um, I want to get this quote right for you. Um, you're going to be my new idol. Oh, he's amazing. (laughs) Let me actually put on my glasses (laughs) and read this to you. Um, okay. So Desmond Tutu, he says, there comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. 
Yep. Root cause. (laughs) Root cause. And I think that's why I've always felt a connection between my chaplaincy work and my activism work is you deal with enough trauma and enough stories of suffering and pain and mental health crises. And at a certain point, you got to go, okay, I want to help you and I want to help you and I want to help you. But like, why did this happen? What is causing all of this pain? What is like causing all of the trauma? Like, let's go up river and figure out like why people are getting thrown into the water in the first place. You pull, you try to pull enough people out of the water. And I use that lightly. I don't mean it in like a saviorism way, but just in terms of continuing the metaphor of of Tutu, Um, you pull enough people out of the water. Eventually, I hope you would ask, well, like, how did all of these people get into the water? And, and is there a way we can prevent them from ever having gotten thrown into the water in the first place? Mm-hmm. So pretty soon after doing, in my experience, a lot of clinical work, you get into systems and policy and mm-hmm. activism and community organizing. And I think a lot of it starts maybe, at least in my experience, maybe yours too, it starts with seeing clients who are struggling. And you again, like you said, just time and time again, you see the same kind of themes of issues and you're like, what, what is causing this? And it, it definitely feel there's like a huge burden on the clinician sometimes if they're conscious of it, of like, man, I want to change the world now. I want to go into advocacy. I want to do policy work. And it's like, even then it's like, you're still just one person and you're trying to, you know, still be motivated. It can be hard for sure. It's really, really hard. But rewarding. Um, yeah. Rewarding and full of possibility. Mm-hmm. And um, we have a saying in Judaism, you don't have to complete the work, but neither are you free to desist from the work. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> you know, so just because we can't do everything doesn't mean that we can't and shouldn't do what we can. Yeah. I, this actually reminds me of a client that I still probably think about at least once a week that I used to work with. Um, and he was, have you heard of the revolving door clients? Um, I hate that term, but it's a reality that they face. And for those who are listening, who are like, what does that even mean? Um, it could be, you know, people in outpatient settings. That's where I saw this client, but it could also be people who are just in and out of the hospitals. And for me specifically, maybe you've seen like psychiatric hospitals, like they, they get themselves into psychiatric hospitals. Sometimes it's involuntary. Sometimes it's voluntary. They stay there for however long, not a long time, but sometimes the hospitals are like, you know, we've stabilized them and now we can, you know, release them back into the public and then they go back into the public and not always, but for this client, it was continued substance use. It was continued, you know, not having housing, not having like food or water and, you know, medical attention that he needed outside of it, going back to the hospital and just this continued cycle. And, you know, not only did I just talk to the parents and how overwhelmed they felt of like not being able to do anything, but this poor guy, like he, I I still feel for him. Like I think about him, I'm like, I wonder how he's doing, but it was like, it's the system at play. Like we, we can only do so much as an outpatient place, the inpatient places or hospital settings could only do so much for him. And I just felt so bad for him. Cause it was like, trauma there was also like the basic needs that these people need and that it's just something I think about a lot that also probably got me really interested in systemic work and I'm like how do we change this so people still aren't these like 
in and out clients, revolving totally. door clients, because it's really not their fault, honestly. Totally. I've also heard them called frequent flyers. Yeah, frequent flyers. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, one of my deepest beliefs is there's a whole lot of talk about mental health crisis, right? And how mm-hmm. widespread it is. And our only solution most talked about is more therapy. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. what? My, my deepest belief, I'll tell you what it is. If everyone had safe and adequate housing, if everyone could feed their families, if everyone could access healthcare, if everyone could have a sense of safety in their neighborhoods and in their homes and in their schools and in their communities, and if everyone could have access to stable work, I truly believe this is just my imaginative statistic that the widespread mental health crisis would be cut by 90%. And then I think there would always be struggles and there's suffering and there's diagnoses, right? But what we call like the mental health struggle that we try to solve with more and more therapy really is, would be solved if people could just feed their families, have jobs, find safety, provide for those they love. It's when you don't get, when you can't do that, and then because you can't do that, that compounds and compounds, and then over the generations, and then all your time is trying to do that, and then trauma, and mm-hmm. all of that compounding, then we diagnose it as like this mental health problem. Yeah. But I think the majority of what we call a mental health problem is actually better termed something like systemic inequality yeah. problem, oppressive conditions problem, mm-hmm. Um you could come up with better terms, but when we call it a mental health problem, we then just try to solve it by therapy. But really what's going on is like people can't live safely, provide for themselves, get access to healthcare, have food on the table, send their kids to school. Like that's the root problem. We don't have to pathologize really just basic needs not being met. Yeah. And you know, I am so happy that mental health is being talked about more but like you said however it's like mental health probably most of the times isn't the root cause and I think now that we're talking about it we're like oh go get therapy like you're saying you'll find out your dis- like your diagnosis mm-hmm. you'll go get the interventions you need and everything will be okay and it's like Partially, yeah, but it's like, again, it's like, are we just still pulling people out of that river? Have we really gotten to the root cause or are we putting a Band-Aid over the fact that this is actually a systemic issue that we haven't solved? Maybe we don't want to solve because, you know, I I don't know if you have this perspective too, but we kind of talked about it as well. It was like, I I personally think a lot of the systemic issues that are still at play, not all of them, have to do with money and people want to make money. And they want to keep their system the same so that the people at the top can continue making millions, billions of dollars. And that's kind of why they keep it the same, because they don't have to touch it. They make money. They don't care who's at the bottom, who's suffering, because at the end of the day, they can go to sleep comfortably. Yeah, I I want to quote uh, my favorite journalist out of Australia. Her name is Caitlin Johnstone. I encourage everybody to look up her work. It is the most truth the most truth telling and insightful journalism I've come across, and she speaks truth to power every single day. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things she talks about is how limited we are in our solutions by the profit motive. 
In other words, if you look at climate change, if you look at poverty, if you look at healthcare, if you look at any of the problems facing society and humanity today, there actually are many, many solutions. Mm -hmm. It's not like it's quantum physics where the solution is just beyond us. It's never been discovered. It's impossible to crack. Actually, there are lots and lots of solutions to all of these problems, but of all of those solutions, we limit ourselves down to the tiny corner that is a solution plus a profit motive. Mm -hmm. And often when we limit it by that, then there's nothing that really comes up. And so then we talk about the problem as if it's unsolvable beyond us. It's like, no, no, no. It's only beyond us and seems unsolvable if you're only looking at solutions that feed the profit motive. Yep. So when we use the profit motive as a lens, it cuts off 99% of possible solutions mm -hmm. that we could utilize if our main goal wasn't making money, if yep. it was actually like caring for society mm -hmm. and taking care of each other and our planet. Yep. You have a very humanist orientation and I'm the exact same way and I love it. I consider myself a humanist. Okay, perfect. Yeah, a Jewish humanist. I always say Jewish humanist um, because I'm not theistic. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I really appreciate about Judaism is it it is not inherently theistic, but for people that don't really know about Judaism, it's easy to assume that it's like every other religion that inherently is faith-based. So I often will say I'm a Jewish humanist, kind of giving people cool. a sense that maybe I'm not traditionally theistic. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, can uh, I ask, is spirituality yeah. important to you? Like what, a personally and or professionally, like in your program, I'm always curious how and if spirituality has ever come into play in conversations about wellness. You know, that's such an important question that I definitely, this is somewhere I'm specifically lacking because, well, I shouldn't even say lacking. I think it's just my, I don't even want to say modality, but my kind of lens of spirituality has changed drastically over time. So um, when I was born and like how I grew up, um, my family is Catholic and I was baptized, kind of went through the whole confirmation and all that stuff within the church. Um, we weren't like the frequent flyers, but we definitely like practiced it. Um, and I'm Italian, so I think that's kind of intertwined as well. Um, but I think over time, I, I had this on another podcast too. I think of religion and spirituality different. I think spirituality is more of this like over encompassing like umbrella term and religion is just one of those so in that kind of analogy I think my spirituality or like my religion has expanded into just general spirituality and I think I don't know there's some stuff from like Buddhism that I appreciate there's stuff of like still Catholicism that I still appreciate um but when it comes to like therapy in itself I don't have like much training when it comes to identifying it. However, I think it's important to still acknowledge like whatever traditions or practices that people like or find to be helpful in like a, you know, protective risk factor kind of thing. I like to accentuate and like if that's a strength of theirs, I like to accentuate that. But I don't know. Hopefully that answers your question. I It totally I'm still, does. I'm still trying to find it, I guess, and how it is relevant to me. Yeah, no, I love that you're kind of thinking about that in your program and in your clinical mm -hmm. work. Studies are conclusive 
every single study shows when you look at patient experience in hospitals, mm -hmm. patient satisfaction, patient impact scores, that patients want to be asked about their spirituality. Good. Um, it doesn't mean every patient will identify as spiritual, but it, it, it's it's very conclusive statistically that people feel more seen fully and holistically oh. when spirituality is even just open. Someone might say no, but even still that makes them seem like, oh, they, they really are being seen more I, holistically. Absolutely. Well, and we even talk about it in terms of like diagnosis too. Like we talk about like, are there specific practices or traditions that people often do that may look like a diagnosis or something that's out of the Western norm of pathology? And we we talk about it to that certain extent. I'm trying to think of like an example off the top of my head. Um, a lot of it's been like, just because a lot of my professors are forensic psychologists and talk about how people are misdiagnosed all the time when it's a traditional practice it's a part of their religion um but yeah no i think like you said it's part of the holistics like this is if this is really important to someone even if it's not important like that's still this narrative a part of this person it's still important whether they have it or not and so like you said asking about it giving them that sense of choice about how to answer it too like oh that's so important <laughs> Yeah. And I would say it's actually really radical yep. because especially in bio-Western medicine, there's really a focus for very good reasons on empirical, on mm. the concrete, on what you can prove. That's super, super important. Money. Money. <laughs> and I think spirituality is like more oh. nebulous. I think it makes people uncomfortable. I think people who don't really understand what spirituality is, its relationship with religion, what it means. I think it's often just outright dismissed as being like woo-woo as not being important, as being ancillary, as being optional. It's not something you can like nail down as easily as a diagnosis, yeah. as a treatment, as a certain medication. And so I think, it, I mean, it has been marginalized mm -hmm. in bio-Western medicine. And I think that's slowly beginning to change, even in the research. Um, there's a bunch of research on the importance on mental health practitioners and spiritual care chaplains working together. There's a lot. Oh, yeah. It's, oh. It, it's conclusive. Um, I put together actually a 20 page annotated bibliography that goes through all the research on the importance of integrating spiritual care and mental health. Um, and yet it's still often not seen as important, right? It's like the mental health providers are definitely seen as important. Chaplains are ignored. Um, chaplains don't know how to work with mental health practitioners. Mental health practitioners are very skeptical of chaplains. So I think it's really a fecund area of growth mm -hmm. for both of our fields to better understand spirituality and how we can work together in providing holistic care to patients. Yeah. And again, it's like another tool. I hate the cliche thing, but it's like another tool in the toolbox, like another skill you can bring to the table. If they identify with it, great. If they don't, great. But it's something that hopefully can help them, you know, bring out this side of them that they can actually share maybe their characteristics, their personality about themselves, get them talking, feel heard, feel seen, which is really the point of anything we do in chaplain work, I would imagine, and mental health. Totally. As a human baseline, we want to yeah. feel seen. We want to feel understood. We want to feel loved. I'm going to start to kind of wrap up the show. Um, however, I asked all my guests a question, um, but basically what is a recommendation or advice that you would like to give to the listeners, either based off of what we've been talking about today or just in general, you think people should know? What would you say? Mm. 
I think that's such a beautiful question. And I'm not usually one to give advice. So I'll reframe it a little bit and I'll offer an invitation. Perfect. So when thinking about what has often made a difference for the people I work with, this is just like a little nugget that often really resonates for people. So I would invite people who are listening to consider this. To take a moment in this moment or after the podcast and think about something about you that you're really struggling with. It could be a characteristic. Maybe you are quick to anger. Maybe you isolate yourself. Maybe you don't take very good care of yourself. Maybe you stay up really late at night and don't get good sleep. Maybe you hold on to grudges or are resentful of people. Whatever it is, think about something that you struggle with about yourself. Bring it into the room. Bring it into your heart. Now, the invitation is to look at this very same part about you, this very same characteristic, and just ask yourself, what are the blessings that this characteristic also brings into my life? For example, if you're someone who struggles with patience, if you're an impatient person, you might struggle with the implications of being an impatient person. But I would invite you to ask yourself, in what ways is your impatience also a blessing and a strength of yours? Mm -hmm. So maybe when things go wrong, you're not patient in the face of injustice, or maybe you're really good at getting started instead of delaying actions that need to be taken in your own life or around you. Maybe if you're quick to anger, you're dealing with the struggle that that brings into your life. But maybe at the root of that, that means that you're really passionate and you really care. And maybe it's coming out in a way that's harmful or destructive or maladaptive. But the root of that, where that comes from, also is probably responsible for blessings and strengths in your life. And so sometimes I love inviting people, even before we try to change anything, even before we try to work on anything, is to just truly spend time seeing both sides of the coin. So whatever it is you're struggling with, whatever is a challenge in your life, I just want to invite you to also consider for a moment or more how it also is the root of some blessings and how it also is the root of some strengths that you have in you. Thank you for sharing that. That is much needed. I hope for everyone listening, but also me too. Like, I think that reframe was beautiful. So thank you for sharing it. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to have conversations like this, Morgan. And I think the lens and perspective that you're bringing to your work and the voice that you're being in this space is really powerful and really profound and really transformative. And anything I can do to collaborate, uplift and support your work, I'm here for. I'm just so excited that we're connected on LinkedIn to start. <laughs> I feel like we just, I love seeing your work. So it's, it's definitely inspiring. So thank you to you too. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks again, Morgan. Yeah. Um, And thank you again to everyone as usual for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. You um, got something from it. I'm so excited for you all to listen to next month's show. Um, You already know where you can find the podcast because that's why you're listening to it. Um, But if you want more content, I'm on LinkedIn so you can just look up my name. Um, I will attach all of Abby's work, all of her social stuff so you guys can see what she's doing and follow her along. 
Um, you can also follow me on Instagram. It's holistic underscore healing LC, but feel free to reach out if you need anything or want to be on the show. So talk to you all soon though. Bye.